Hello, friends. This is David Pasqualone with the Remarkable People Podcast, Season 2, Episode 37, The Echo Huang Story. The Remarkable People Podcast. Check it out. The Remarkable People Podcast. Listen, do, repeat. For life. Ladies and gentlemen, we have not only a remarkable show for you today, not only a practical and important show for you today, but we are going to celebrate. This is the first episode solely produced, solely edited, and with a teaser at the end of this for next week's episode. By intern Casey. Let's give him a hand. Woo! All right. So you, the episode you're about to hear is produced, edited by intern Casey. Stick around for the end of the podcast. And not only are you going to enjoy a great episode and learn a ton that you can do and apply to life, but you're also going to hear a little teaser for next week's episode from intern Casey. Before we jump into this episode... A big shout out and thank you to our sponsors. This week's sponsors, Pam Heinold. PamHeinold.com, Better Homes and Gardens Realty, Pensacola, Florida. If you are looking for a home, a second home, rental properties, some kind of vacation destination that you can live at year round or just a couple weeks a year, check out Pensacola, Florida. Check out PamHeinel.com. You will not be sorry. We love living down here. Just so you know, does it get hot sometimes? Yes. But does going to the beach and chilling out and swimming and paddleboarding and boating and fishing and all these awesome things you can do make up for it? Oh, yeah. I'm so grateful to God we live here and you can too. Come on down to Pensacola, Florida, and call Pam Heinold to get you your dream home. Now, second, BTK Innovations, BodyTemperatureKiosk.com. BTK Innovations is the solution for the chaos going on in our world right now. People are checking temperatures They don't want their employees to come in sick. They don't want to let customers in their building sick. So BodyTemperatureKiosk.com by BTK Innovations is the solution you need. It sits there. Fully automated body temperature scanner. In one second, it scans you, tells you if you have a fever, reminds you to put on a face mask if if you set it to that can open and close electronic door locks. It can take attendance. It can do so many wonderful things. And through this ad, go to their website, bodytemperaturekiosk.com. That's singular, not plural. So bodytemperaturekiosk, K-I-O-S-K.com. And you will use the promo code BTKCARESDP. And you're going to get $200 off a unit. You're going to be able to scan people without endangering your employee's safety, getting in that personal six-foot bubble. It's going to take control of your environment 
and down the road, it's going to keep you away from not just getting sick today, but being sick when people sue you because they're saying that, well, you endangered me as an employee. BTK Innovations makes it a fully automated process so your employees are protected, your guests are protected, and your bank account's protected. BTK Innovations. So that's it. I just want to say thank you again for you being our listener. God and you are the best part of this show. So thankful to have you here. Thank you for Pam Honnold Realty. Thank you for BTK Innovations. Thank you for intern Casey. And now let's listen to the Echo Huang story. Echo, welcome. Thanks for being here today. Hey, David. I'm thrilled to be here um, in my office uh, in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, Echo and I became friends through Interview Connections, and we've been having a dialogue for a month now, two months maybe? A month maybe? A month yeah, to two COVID, months. A month to two months. <laughs> with COVID, time is, is a relative term more than usual. So Echo has an amazing story, a remarkable story, and it's been super fun to get to know her. And what's interesting is her latest book, Own Your Future. This is awesome. And I'm not just saying it because she's my guest. I'm saying it because it's true. I actually put the book down because I wanted to interview her and I like my interviews to be organic. So you and me as the listener, we're learning Echo's story at the same time. But she does such a fantastic job telling her story that I had to put it down, then look back through this table of contents and be like, okay, let's get to the back where all the business and investing strategy is. And it's a fantastic book. I don't want to steal Echo's Thunder, but just like always, the format of the Remarkable People podcast, if you're a new listener, is we go through the past and Echo tells us her story and she'll pick some challenges that she had to face and obstacles and how she overcame those so we can too. Then we're going to transition to where she is today and then where she's going so we can help her. But before we get there, I want to tell you one thing that I loved about her book is I've never seen an author approach a book this way. Not only does it have a beautiful cover and the graphic design is incredible, props to whoever you had do this, but the book doesn't just go through how many of us read financial advisor books and basically, yeah, it's great if you're starting when you're 16, right? (laughs) Echo's book breaks it down where if you're 16 or if you're 20 or if you're 30 or if you're 40, 50, 60, hey, here's a plan to where to start at that age. And then she covers a whole bunch of do's and don'ts and ideas and strategies. And okay, you're trying to make a power of attorney. This is the best way I found to do it. It's a really great book. It's a really great process. I'll let Echo tell you all the details, but I just wanted you to know that's there. And I really do love it. Um, Just from what I've read, I was super impressed. So now Echo, I've spoke a bunch. The only other thing I want to say is I want to thank our listeners. Right now, we're over 58 countries keep bringing the feedback, but I want, I need your help. There's a glitch and it's a known glitch. A lot of podcasters have where reviews get stuck. We are reviews. If you ever check them out, it'll be like 29, jump up to 54, back to 29, 29, up to seven, back to jump. It goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But on the daily basis, we're stuck at 29. That's not because we have 29 reviews. It's because they have some kind of computer glitch. So let's bombard their computers. There's people I know that have over 200 and they show 13. Mm-hmm. If you're listening to the podcast and you like this podcast, please go to Apple, go to Spotify, go to Google and leave us a review 
But even if you just click the rate button and give us five-star review, that would be awesome. Let me know you did it and we're going to send you free stickers. Let's stick together, right? We got these new Remarkable People podcast stickers. We'll send you a sticker. Um, but leave a rating if you can. And if you can't leave us a five-star review, email me at me at davidpasqualone.com. We'll put that in the show notes. Let me know why so we can be better and serve you more. Okay, with all that out of the way, Echo, tell us your story. And again, ladies and gentlemen, you're about to hear a woman who's well-educated, well-spoken. She has a history and a present of accolades that are incredible, but she came to America with $800 and she's made this life and it's beautiful. And she's written a book that honestly, her grammar in English is better than most Americans when they write. So, I mean, she's an incredible, <laughs> remarkable woman. Echo, please share with us your story. Wow, David, you are setting very high expectation here before I even open my mouth. So um, I, I just want to have a conversation and share my journey. And hopefully um, you, you can learn something from me because of the mistakes I probably made and what you know obstacles I have overcome. So I just want to share my personal story first. Uh, I was born and raised in China and um, in southern part of China. My parents were um, high school teachers, so they were college educated, which was, I think, uncommon at that time. Um, and they were sent to rural villages to teach in separate, two, like they are separated. And uh, they were not together until I was uh, eight years old. So I have two younger sisters. And my um, I my early memories were we were very um, we didn't have a lot of things. I mean, we didn't have running water and the electricity was unreliable. But um, I actually felt pretty fortunate as I was growing up, maybe because compared to the other kids in the village, uh, I felt that my parents had provided me very good education and, of course, very uh I, I think the financial security I felt early on. And um, so later, my parents moved to better places. So when I was 12, they moved to a bigger town with electricity and running water. And uh, I think most, that was, let me see. Oh, when I was 12, we moved to Shenzhen. Uh, at that time, it was a small fishing village on the border of Hong Kong in southern China. And um, Shenzhen was just, uh, was the first special economic zone in China. So the former leader uh, in China, Deng Xiaoping, decided to test uh, capitalism in this uh, social uh, you know, socialist society. Yep, page and, 11 of your book. I love this. <laughs> and he implemented something very unique, I believe, uh, to open it up China uh, by uh, having special tax policies to attract foreign investments to the little fishing village and very much copying Hong Kong just across the border and uh, the transformation was so amazing because uh, when I was there from 12 to 20, I witnessed the transformation of this entire place. I think today you can actually say Shenzhen is one of the richest cities in China. It has, it's probably called the, the Silicon Valley in China. 
And also, I think the population is anywhere from maybe 17 million to 20 million people with very advanced subway airport and skyscrapers. So I just want you to know that the place completely changed and I witnessed the beginning of it when I was a teenager. And uh, so and that was because they took the embraced capitalist principles and embedded it. Now, China is a yeah. fantastic, beautiful country. I'd always wanted to go to China. But what I'm seeing is under the communist leadership, you're, you struggled. But when the capitalists got infused in it, it thrived, right? I think the best way to say it is China was very close society. So as you, you probably know, for many, many years, China it was just completely closed out. I mean, it, it, it was sufficient it wasn't wealthy, you know, it was just like people, a lot of people were farmers and they were able to feed themselves, but a lot of people simply couldn't afford anything like luxury stuff. And um, the leader, Deng Xiaoping, decided to try something new. And in order to see how that would work, as you could imagine, China, I mean, there are just so many people in China with like 50 ethnic groups. So it's really complicated if you do something major uh, across the country. I think he was smart enough to say, why not choose this Shenzhen because it's unique location across the border from Hong Kong. So on the mainland side of China. And it was uh, it was one way to say, you know, let's have something a little bit different. So I would see the version. It's not the same capitalism like what we have here in the U.S., but it was uh, it provided more freedom for people to start their own businesses. And you could imagine if they have uh, tax incentives for foreign investors to put money into the city. That is extremely important because I think when I was there, there were so many factories. Imagine shoes, many shoes and clothes. <laughs> at that time, it was mainly shoes and clothes. You could just imagine at that time. But today, in fact, it's more well known for expensive stuff like iPhone and other electronic stuff, the Chinese version of you know high-end uh, my smartphone and everything. So just imagine over 30 years, the you know, there there were more special economic zones along the coastal cities in China. But Shenzhen was the first one and it was the most successful one. So I would say um, I was really dreaming of traveling overseas because I think as I was, you know, just imagine I was 12 years old moving into a place where uh, so many changes were happening. And I was able to watch Hong Kong TV using the antenna on the balcony. And I was able to see the lights across the river. That's where the I was able to see the lights in Hong Kong from the top of my parents' you know, apartment building, but I couldn't cross the border. But I was very familiar with uh, you know, the Hong Kong uh, movie stars and pop singers. And I was able to watch, you know, the news uh, about U.S. So in a way, I, I was able to have uh, exposure to the outside world probably a lot more than a lot of people at that time growing up, you know, in the 80s in China. So I felt 
very fortunate. And um, I decided to go to a very different route in terms of education. Um, my parents were not well off at all as school teachers in the city. They were doing fine in a small village then compared to the poor farmers, but not in a big city. Uh, I think, uh, you know, teachers were definitely underpaid. And um, they have they would have three daughters going to uh, college like within four years if I choose the traditional route of going to senior high school and then get into college in China. So I made a pretty big decision when I was uh, 14. Instead of going to senior high school, I went to School of Business and Economics. It was a three-year program for accounting diploma. but uh, So I was able to get a Account, an accounting diploma when I was 17 years old. And, um, and I landed a really great job as an accountant with the Bank of China when I was 17 years old. And now, before you go on, yeah. the thought process was very wise. How did you come to that decision? Because at that point, there was a mm -hmm. shortage of accountants. Mm -hmm. You saw most 15-year-olds and 17-year-olds are thinking, hey, who am I going to marry? Who am I going to date? You know, what am I going to do? And you're like, huh, there's a shortage of accountants. I can do this in three. You're like strategizing. So did your parents help you with that? Did you meet somebody? How did you come to that decision? I, I, we, we talked about it, but I think in the end, they gave me enough freedom to choose my own path. And I was always very aware of my family's uh, economic situation. So I, I, because I'm the oldest child in the family, I think traditionally, and they don't have sons. They have three daughters. And in my mind, I always felt that I would be the one who take on more responsibility to perhaps help my parents in the future when they get older. So just based on talking to people about like this, I, I wanted to be uh, I want to have my own business someday. But um, I saw the way to learn about the business world, accounting would be a good place to start. Um, and I calculated it would not be much, it would not cost my family much if I just skipped, uh, you know, at that time, uh, four-year college education. <laughs> uh, so I was able to get a job. I, I, uh, I got paid more than my parents as teachers. And um, and the Bank of China was the only bank at that time that handled foreign currency exchange. So I think that also opened my eyes to maybe someday I need to speak English. So in my mind, I was like, I was using my limited English um, to help uh, foreigners to exchange currencies uh, in China. So I felt like, well, you know, Right now, I have no way of knowing how I'm going to get out of this country. But I imagined if someday I, if I get out of this country, I need to speak English well. So I started taking English classes for at night. Uh, so after work for almost three years. So um, that definitely had helped when I was able to. I, I must share a story. I think it's probably important for the listeners. It is Absolutely. That, do it. Do it. Yeah. I love in the short-term sacrifice, three years of school after work when you're tired for the long-term vision and gain. That's so, pr I'm so proud of you. That's so great. <laughs> I felt like um, 
that was one way for me to create my own opportunities um, because I need to prepare myself before the real opportunities came up. So that was one of the lessons I think I want people to kind of remember when you are not, when your life or job is not going well, you do need to think about what can you put, what you can prepare for potential opportunities when they show up, like right in front of you. Are you ready to take that, take on, you know, the new challenges? So for me, it was, um, I want to share that I always admire authors since I was a little kid because I love reading. So when I was uh, in China, I read many books written by an author from Taiwan. And uh, her name was Echo Chen. And she, as a citizen of Taiwan, that's a you know, different government, right? It just, uh, it, Taiwan was part of China many years ago. And, you know, and now obviously it has its own government. And so Echo was able to travel to more than 50 countries. And she wrote about all her travel experiences, including how people lived in Sahara Desert. So she wrote about her experience in the U.S., in Europe, and in Sahara Desert. So for a teenager, you know, a lot of people read her books. And for me, her books opened my eyes. So she was my major role model, in addition to my mom. You know, my mom is my role model as well. But she, I, I just love the way she wrote how she was able to do that as an independent woman. So I was dreaming about my own adventures someday, don't know when. So one day the opportunity came and uh, my uncle called me from the U.S. Uh, he actually was a research scholar in chemistry for the University of uh, Idaho in a small town, Moscow, Idaho. And he was there for only two years, but he knew I wanted to see the world. So he said, if you are able to get a full-time student visa, maybe I can kind of help you at the beginning of your journey in the U.S. And uh, I took that as a sign. <laughs> I took that as a sign for me to quit my job, which was a very risky move because a lot of people you know, they just really believed that was a really good job. And after three years there, I decided that I wanted more. So I quit my job and I had to study English for several months to pass the exam, TOEFL exam, that is test of English as a foreign language. Many universities in the U.S. require the TOEFL scores to be above 550 before they would, you know, allow foreign students to come to the U.S. to study college classes. So it was not an easy exam for somebody. So I had to study uh, full time for about two, three to four months before I took the exam. And I was so fortunate to pass. And then uh, my mom was able to find two sponsors outside the U.S. to to say they are ready to sponsor me. Unless, uh, without sponsors, I wouldn't even get a passport. 
And without a passport, it wouldn't be possible for me to even go to the U.S. embassy to apply for a full-time student visa uh, to come to the U.S. So one very memorable moment of that journey was after all the hard work, I was accepted by two universities. I chose University of Idaho because my uncle was there. And then I was like, well, now I have to get my passport. I got my passport. When the final step came, it was, I have to get full-time student visa. So I took a train, um, three-hour train from Shenzhen to Guangzhou, the capital city of my province, Guangdong province, where U.S. embassy was. I went over there. I had to stay at a hotel overnight. The reason for it is you actually need to go first, stand in line to get a number for the next day. So you are, I was standing in line, like block, the lines were so long, circling like uh, several blocks in front of the U.S. embassy. I got a number first. And in the following day, I I had to stand in line again to get into the U.S. embassy to apply for the visa. Many people came out rejected. They, um, it was very difficult to get a full-time student visa. I think for me, it was not easy. I I was, um, how would I say, because I was going to come to the U.S. to study undergraduate program, and I chose finance. So it's very, people looked at this and say, well, what is your chance you come into the U.S.? You're not even a graduate student, and you have no scholarship, and you chose finance. That's like, how many Americans study finance and you chose finance. So I really, I think during the interview, I think my passion for the financial world and uh, probably also my uh, determination influenced this immigration officer. And I probably convinced her that I would not be a burden to this society in the U.S. And uh, she said, welcome to America. That's in the end, I was like, oh my gosh, Today is my lucky day. (laughs) So that's how I got my visa, you know, and then that night, I remember, I took the train back, very late night train back to Shenzhen. I pretended that I didn't get the visa. (laughs) Oh no, your mom and dad. No, my my mom was so prepared to comfort me anyway. She just thought, you know, what the chance is pretty slim. And uh, so I just went along, you know, no, I try. I didn't get it. So she just said all the words, all kinds of words to comfort me. And then I just said, I did it. I got it. So can you imagine <laughs> that was, that was, I was just so overjoyed. Um, so my mom. And I, just to interrupt too, if people are having the mindset, when you're telling your story, your mom had to get two American sponsors. Today, that's difficult through the internet through mobile phones. This was back years ago and we had letters and we had to make like long-term, this took a long time for your mom, a lot of work, right? My my mom is quite resourceful. That's another thing I think um, I give my mom a lot of credit and uh, she found two sponsors who cannot be a Chinese citizen. The first one she found is a cousin who lived in Hong Kong. 
just across the border. But she, she, I mean, she's related to that family, even though you know they, they live in Hong Kong, so not inside China. So that person was able to say yes. We were not really asking them to give us money because what we wanted to tell them is that you know, hey, my uncle at that time was in the U.S., so you know they kind of know that my uncle probably helped me out a lot. And then another thing is my own work or potentially getting a scholarship. And the second sponsor、uh, was my mom's.、Um, College classmate who lived in Thailand and who was a very successful businessman, and it's really great for me to know that my mom has good network. Considering, you know how how we live in rural villages, because she still had connection with her like college classmates who. For whatever reason, went overseas many years ago, and you know, what I mean, so it's kind of like we. Of course, we had no internet. You know, it was the phone call and the letters to make it happen. But I think my, I think those two sponsors. I'm very grateful for their support because they do have to fill out a financial affidavit and share their tax returns. You know, that is not something regular people want to do for. You know, whoever, right?、It's, no, not at all. <laughs> it, 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 it's it's a lot because you are sponsoring someone. So if I became a burden to this society, I mean, they need to come up with some money, right? The government can go back to them.、Uh, but anyway, so that was one thing、um, I do want to mention is you know, networking works、uh, today in the business world, and I also. Learn from what my mom did to be really resourceful, and I I want to share one moment. I think I always reflect on how hard that was.、Um, today, a lot of people probably, a lot of Chinese people have money, so they come here to study with money.、Uh, but imagine at that time, my great job at the Bank of China, I I was paid about hundred U.S. dollars per month. So it was about hundred dollars a month, and I had to save for three years. And then remember, I quit my job and I went to study English, and then tried. You know, that was nine months before I came to the U.S.、Yep. And then I I used the money to buy a one way ticket from Hong Kong to Seattle. So after I really that's confidence have, and focus, and you're do or die. <laughs> I do or die, and then my parents didn't have much money. They practically gave me almost like all their savings. When I was talking about eight hundred dollars, that was after I bought the airfare, and my mom gave me whatever she had at the train station in Shenzhen when they had to say goodbye to me. My mom was in tears, and she was just felt bad that she didn't have much money to give me. And I just comforted her and say, "You know, mom, don't worry. What you have given me is、uh, smart brain and courage to try new things." And I don't remember that's what I said until probably ten years ago, when my mom wrote it down in a card to remind me. That's what I said. I was like, "Oh, I was that smart when I was twenty years old." <laughs> so it was. I just don't even remember, but I think what I said to my mom helped her 
when when I was in the U.S., we we had to send letter. Two it takes two weeks to get there. It takes two weeks to come back here, and I used to record cassette tapes. And then I mailed the cassette tape back to my family. She kept all my letters and cassette tapes. And you know, for her, for a long time, that was something that she really held on to, and she listened often. And I just want people to kind of know that you know it's really important to have the family support. And of course, I you know still cherish that very much today. And. You know, I took high risk, but certainly I can tell people that it was the risk worth taking. I took calculated risk based on what I had, limited resources, and it wasn't easy either. After they came to the U.S., so I planned my future meticulously before I came here. Right, so I practically say, "Well, I need to be able to study and everything." Before you go, yeah, oh, yes, and before you go on with this chapter of your story. There was one part of the book I thought was so awesome and touching where you and your mom were visiting a grocery store that was more American-based and the food was too expensive to buy. And you're like, mom, one day you're going to be able to come in here or any store and buy whatever you want. I just thought that was so awesome. Thank you. That moment, um, looking at all the beautifully displayed Washington apples and all kinds of cheese. Uh, when we looked at the price, they were like so out of the reach. I mean, I looked at the things at the store. I we could not afford a single thing compared to the regular Chinese market. And I think I remember. I think I was about nineteen. And、um, when I made a promise to my mom, I was determined that I need to do better to support my family. And、um, years later, of course, that was. It was not hard to go to a grocery store and tell my mom, "Don't have to look at the prices of whatever apples you want, or you know, cheese or whatever." So yes, that was a very.、Um, it, it is important to set goals.、Uh, for me, daring to dream is very important principle in life because if I did not keep that dream alive throughout the difficult years. It would be really difficult to, you know, to realize my American dream. And then the second thing is plan things meticulously, but、uh, be adaptable. Because、um, I want to share the my part of the journey where I had to pivot several times. So when people say, "Oh, you you are in the U.S. as one of the lucky ones," right? In 1992, I came to the U.S. and it was not. Easy at all, especially the first year.、Uh, keep in mind that my English was good compared to most Chinese at that time, but my first class in the U.S. was macroeconomics. Oh, fun stuff! <laughs> it was it was inside a huge, you know, large auditorium, probably three hundred to four hundred people. And the economic professor, I'm sure he was very good, and people were laughing at his jokes, and he was talking about the U.S. stock market, the economy. I could not take notes. I my English was not good enough to capture all this complicated financial economic stuff. And the next day, I had to go and read the entire chapter by using English Chinese dictionary. So. 
in before I went into this class, I must finish reading the entire chapter in order to understand what he was talking about. And also, I another class I couldn't even continue. It was English literature. <laughs> I can't understand that either, and I'm from America. Oh my gosh, I I I I didn't realize how difficult it was until. I realized I simply couldn't read fast enough to go back to the next class because, well, number one, it was old English. I had a hard time understanding modern English, and <laughs> I, so I dropped the. I, I'm kind of laughing until my tear comes out. So it's like I dropped the class and I chose geography instead, and I was like, I understand where the countries are located, so maybe I will get a. Good score if I just switch to geography. So I was, I tried very hard the first year, and I finally got the perfect GPA of four point oh. So、uh, that helped、uh, me to、you. that helped me to apply for a scholarship、uh, to come to Minnesota. So I could not afford the non-resident tuition in University of Idaho as an international student. I had to pay non-resident tuition. So the total cost per year, including room and board, would be close to ten thousand per year, and I didn't stay on campus because I lived it with my uncle and his family the first year. So I was able to save some money on room and board, but you know the tuitions were so high I couldn't afford it. So yeah, I and had for for our listeners, Echo. Yeah. If you haven't looked into American like. Uh, continuing education in college. If you're an out-of-state resident, that's usually two to three times what the standard tuition is. So back in the '90s, ten thousand dollars was probably what equivalent to thirty thousand now. But then, if you were out of state, you multiply that times two or three. So that was、yeah. a lot of money just for being out of state. Yeah. So I finally said that's not going to work because number one, my uncle was not there long term. And he wouldn't have that much money, and I didn't want to go to my sponsor to ask for money. Fortunately, hey, this is why I think networking helped. I was talking to some people on campus, and I learned from one international student whose girlfriend was studying accounting in Minnesota, and he told me Minnesota State University system, the public university system. Offers international student resident tuition if you meet two requirements. One is high GPA. The second thing is sign a contract with the university to introduce your own culture to the local communities. And I, <laughs> I was like, where do I sign up? So I called the international student office at Winona State University in Minnesota immediately. And I applied, and I was because my GPA was four point oh, so I had really no problem. I was accepted immediately, so I transferred to Minnesota in March, nineteen ninety three, when it's freezing cold in Minnesota without knowing anyone. But yeah, I, and if you haven't been to Minnesota, <laughs> it's not just snow; it's like deep snow, right? Like real cold. Oh well, I grew up in subtropical tropical climate, so my friends in <laughs> my friends in Idaho was laughing at me when I first mentioned I'm going to Minnesota, and they looked at me like you just told me it's too cold here. 
<laughs> it's yeah, your your winter jacket probably weighed more than you did, right? And uh, but I, I the first year was tough. I didn't know how to dress warm, <laughs> and I did not understand that uh, cotton socks don't really help. I didn't yeah. <laughs> really experience the real cold, you know, the really cold winter. But I have learned to adapt, and now I can say I'm a true Minnesotan. And you know how to dress in layers, right? <laughs> I didn't know there's a concept of dressing in layers because when I was in Shenzhen, the coldest time I need was a, a heavier sweater because in Shenzhen, I had, I had never seen ice or snow. So oh, wow. going from no ice and snow to Idaho where there was, you know, there were four seasons. But then I came to Minnesota. They said there are only two seasons. One is winter, <laughs> the the other is road construction season. So there are about two seasons. But, but I, I will say, other than the freezing cold, it's beautiful, isn't it? it isn't snow it's beautiful? absolutely. Hey, there is a reason why I, I have lived here since because I I have traveled to many places in the US. Uh, but in the end, I think I really love living in Minnesota for multiple reasons. One, in the Twin Cities, it's a community that I still believe it's big enough, not as big as New York and Los Angeles, but it's not too small. So I still have a very good exposure to different type of cultural activities like orchestra, musical plays, and you know, people, restaurant, different type of food. So, uh, and we have many lakes, imagine 10,000 lakes, we have more than 10,000 lakes. And so we, we have very good, I believe, education system as well. So I, I can tell you that as I look back, I would say no regrets, it was the right decision to come here. And um, I had to pivot again, uh, before I graduated from college, because I only for foreign student, I only had one year to look for a job after graduation to gain practical experience. Uh, if I did not have a full-time employment in the field of my study, I would have to go back to China without any experience to show for. So in 94, I, I was very concerned about the job market in the U.S. And um, a college professor told me that if you are able to pass the CPA exam, you are pretty much guaranteed to have a job. I think that is still true today. If you are, can pass CPA exam, you, you probably will, will have a job. And so I actually changed my major from finance to accounting because of that thinking. And I was able to find a job four months before graduation. And then later, I passed the CPA exam, and uh, I, work, I started working for KPMG, uh, Pete Marwick, one of the very large, big, at that time, big six accounting firms in the world, KPMG. So I think as I look back, um, accounting, I don't think I love accounting, but at that time, it was the right decision to put myself in a better situation to get a job with limited resources I had. So, so that's part of my story there. So David, um, as I kind of reflect, and of course, it was very, I think a college experience for me was um, very busy, uh, so much uncertainty. And I was constantly worried about whether I have money to pay for next year's tuition. 
And um, I worked maximum 20 hours per week during school year. And then I work in the summer as well. And I worked as uh, all kinds of jobs, cashier, waitress, you could imagine, uh, including also uh, camera camera women <laughs> on campus. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, we have a long distance learning. Uh, so I had a part-time job on campus videotaping the lecture so that uh, another campus, uh, you know, students can watch it. That's so awesome, Echo. Now, let me ask you a question. Before we get into the next phase of your life, you've mentioned definitely themes like just having that meticulous planning and being flexible and able to pivot and having just that determination and goal setting. But to the listeners, there's people from all over the world listening to you right now. There's people from all sorts of economic classes. If you want to give them at this point, kind of a bottom line, here's a couple steps to take, to take yourself to that next level, or just a word of encouragement, what would you tell them? Well, I, um, and that's another reason I wanted to write a book is I want to explain to people some basic life principles that I believe I have followed that really got me through hard times, right? So it's, if you are not in a good situation yet, uh, now, you do need to think about it. That can, is maybe a temporary situation. So you, you say, well, this is not going as well as I hope. I need to ask myself, what are my dreams right now? Like, what would be ideal situation for me? And then from there, think about how you can network or, well, if you define this is your dream job, you need to do some research about, wow, who has done it successfully and learn about how they actually got there. And then maybe you can do some research and say, can I follow similar paths and get to know some people. So need to respect other people's uh, advice and learn from them. Sometimes it's a simple ask. So the, the way I approach the situation is when I am having very difficult time, first, I need to calm myself down because we, if you are very depressed, you are not most productive. So I personally, first, if I have very hard day and not feeling well, I need to think about doing things that relax myself first and calm myself down, but then start thinking, telling myself, what are the assets and skills I actually have now? What can be enhanced to get to that either I do job and where you need to be? And keep in mind that you need to make incremental improvement along the way. A lot of times we may think, well, that's a too daring dream or too crazy goal. Well, I personally believe setting crazy goals is one way for you to reach further. You, you actually do need to get out of your comfort zone in order to grow. So I personally say to myself, you know, practically every single day, I ask myself, especially for the area I want to improve, have I learned something new today? Have I done better than yesterday? And I, I always want to make sure that I am making some incremental improvements in the areas where I want to be better. And then make sure I recognize my own strengths and skills that can put myself in the zone of genius, 
meaning that I only want to do the things that I am great at and try my best to think of something that the things I don't enjoy doing, can I eliminate it by delegating or outsourcing? So if you can do that every day, it's more likely that you will be in a better situation. So certainly in the financial planning perspective, it's very broad, right? So everybody could be encountering all kinds of difficulties. And I can get a lot more specific a little bit later on the detail of the financial planning aspect to perhaps um, go in deeper on, you know, the cash flow planning, tax planning, and, you know, the charitable giving and insurance planning. But I think in general, for most people, they just need to recognize that uh, today could be a bad day. But if you need to plan ahead and dare to dream and respect other people's knowledge and wisdom, and certainly invest in yourself by further your own education. And my example is that I have gone through higher education and then in my profession, over 20 some years, I've decided to, well, first I passed a CPA exam, but then I decided that certified financial planner designation is really important. So I studied that and passed that before age 30. And then when I was in my 40s, I decided to take on the most challenging exam. That is the Charter Financial Analyst, the CFA uh, Charter. Uh, that took more than three years of study. And um, so, so I just want people to kind of learn from my journey and apply some life uh, principles. Yeah, that's beautiful. And thank you so much. Those steps and that information you just gave is invaluable. And you may want to rewind this as a listener and go through them a couple of times and really take notes and soak it in. But I found it interesting that your first step is control your emotions. We all get happy. We all get sad. But emotions are a kind of an indication of things going on, but we don't want to let emotions control us. And you said you slowed down. You took control of your emotions. You focused on what you can do, Mm -hmm. got in your zone of genius, and then worked. And you worked and worked and worked, and you're in a great place now. So it's so awesome to see. Hey, David, um, it's still a work in progress for me. Oh, yeah. Still, still, there are days I am extremely positive. You know, I can conquer the world. There are days that, you know, maybe things are not going well, just got myself down. And, you know, I normally just give my, it doesn't matter, let's say very sad situation really got me down. I have rules, kind of my, my own rules is like, I cannot let myself down for more than two days. I just, I just have decided that regardless what that is. Maybe I can give myself a break for two days and be, you know, kind of like um, be more focused just on myself because my work is taking care of people. You know, my work is I have all the burden on my shoulder, the financial burdens to pretty much I'm helping all these families manage over $115 million. And there are days you feel, wow. I have so much responsibility. The market is crashing. I don't control the market, right? So in a way, I give myself, and I also want to share that a couple of tips. I mean, each person will find their own ways in terms of self-care. 
for myself, it's really important to have a few things that you do, you know, will make you feel joyful. So for me, I have been doing for the past, what, 13 years, 13 to 14 years, I have done a lot more about ballroom dancing. So, <laughs> so I picked up this hobby of ballroom dancing and I took it really seriously and started hiring private, you know, professional partner and, and dance with my professional partner and go for dance competition. And so in my mind, I was like, you know, for 45 minutes of dance lesson with my private teacher on Saturday, for me, I believe that is one way to really make myself healthier and happier and because I'm doing something that is so different than managing money. And uh, it's very good combination of being artistic and being um, how getting the exercise I really need. Physical. For my brain. Physical yeah. and mental. Because... Yep. Because partner dancing is one of the best exercises to delay brain aging. So the brain, as we all know, you know, will be deteriorating, right? The brain function. And there are ways to keep it up so your brain can be really sharp. One of the best ways is ballroom dancing. Uh, because I had to constantly adjust to my partner's position and different kind of dance routines need to be memorized. So that's one thing. Another thing is to follow my passion of uh, I wanted to learn piano when I was a little kid. We had no money to buy a piano or pay for the lesson. I chose piano class in the first semester at the University of Idaho because when I saw that in the catalog, I was like, I can take piano class in the university? Sign me up. So I... um, so I have been taking piano lessons as well uh, with my daughter. And so that is one of my major hobbies that keep me, I would say, keep me grounded and be happy. Sometimes we just need to have some time not to think about the, all the crisis in the world and just be in my good place. That's awesome, Echo. Well, let's do this. We've gone through your story. And now we're going to get into the section where you're talking about for the guests and for the listeners, mm-hmm. okay, what do I do now at this point yeah. in life? And what are strategies and what are things? But before we go forward, is there anything we've missed in the past and your background and your story that you want to share? Yeah, I will quickly share. How don't feel I- rushed. Don't feel rushed. <laughs> I'm just saying, I just don't want to miss anything. Well, I, I want to give people an idea how I went from being a tax CPA to today owning Echo Wealth Management. So people know the transition and journey I made. Because I think that is important for people to know. I loved working with people. Uh, when I was at KPMG, I was tax senior tax specialist serving mostly corporate executives and very wealthy families as their, you know, I did financial planning, including stock option planning and tax planning throughout the year. I also prepare their individual tax returns, trust returns, and gift tax returns for these high-income people for more than three years. I quickly realized that I love the planning part, not 
not so much the tax season. So after three tax seasons, I came to the conclusion. I came to the conclusion. Oh, this is not my long-term path. And I. So what to- you're saying is you don't love the most complex tax system in the world with millions <laughs> of books and pages written about it, right? Oh, I think it was uh, very repetitive and very inflexible work hours during tax season that probably drove me away. Complexity wasn't the hard thing for me. In fact, I, I see that as my strength because I'm able to bring the very complex issue down to something simple for people to understand. But what was not very fitting for myself was I work 60 to 70 hours hours per week during tax season with no time off at all. So it didn't seem to me that I would have more balanced life someday when I have a child, you know, or get married or something. So I I think that when in my 20s, I realized that. So I realized I was very I didn't know financial advisor was a viable career path. That's a really important thing for me to put in my book. Because I was really great at numbers. There's no questions about that. I was analytical. But, and I also wanted to help people by solving their problems. But I didn't know there was a career path called financial advisor. You can help people solving their money problems, right? And uh, so I luckily when I was struggling with my long-term path with this great firm, I met people. This is why sometimes I want to thank those people again in my book and on the podcast, because I met a group of successful women financial advisors in town. There was a study group called Goddesses of Financial Planning. Nice. I was like, I was invited to join this exclusive study group because I was a tax CPA. And one of this financial advisors said, oh, it would be nice to have a woman CPA to have monthly breakfast and talk about, you know, just like how we talk about, but let's have one CPA in our group. So I was in the group. It was very great to hear how they share there are, you know, all kinds of topic in financial planning for client and practice management, right? So I was able to learn a lot about what they do and the challenges they face when they help their clients with investment investment or tax and everything. And I was able to contribute as the, you know, expert. Over time, I was thinking to myself, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm trying to dream about my perfect career path. And then it was right in front of me. It was right in front of me. I was in this group and they are successful women. There were so few women in this industry. Uh, So then I said, maybe I need to change my career to be a financial advisor. I made a very pivotal change in 2000. In 2000, I quit my job. I started to be a financial advisor for another large firm. So I wasn't like self-employed. It was salary position as a financial advisor for RSM McLaughlin in downtown Minneapolis. And I was able to change my complete career path from a most conservative occupation 
to something I say high risk and high reward if you survive the market downturn. And that was exactly what I had to struggle with. My beginning of this uh, career path where the stock market started to decline. Remember in the 90s, many financial advisors had enjoyed very long bull market, the stock bull market. But when I started to get in, in the industry as a young young Asian woman, new immigrant, financial advisor. I call myself triple minority um, in this financial services industry and trying to make it. So I encounter very big obstacle at the beginning is how can I help clients manage their expectations? Do not make emotional mistakes when the stock market was crashing. It was very difficult for me to tell people, stay the course. We have constructed the portfolio for you diversified, but it doesn't prevent losses. We don't control the market return, but they have to stay in and not sell simply because stock market was crashing. So I think that experience, the first two to three years as financial advisor, and I was looking extremely young. So even when I was, what, 30 I was really looking like 22 or 23. So it was really not easy to tell people, I have years of training. I got all these designations. I'm ready to help you manage your lifetime savings here. Um, but I, I, felt, I felt I did what I could to illustrate uh, what financial planning was. And there was a process you go through. And I followed the certified financial planner you know, that's the nation, the standard to serve these clients. I think over time, as I was networking with CPAs and state attorneys, and I was able to gain their trust. So I, I got some referrals from these professionals when they know that I have done great work in the past, even as a tax CPA. So that really helped me initially to, to gain trust to start managing some people's money. Um, but then in 2003, I made a major change to be uh, my own boss. So I would say that was extremely important step because I left the big firm. I chose LPL Financial to start my own business as a self-employed financial advisor, solo practice. And um, over three years, I was able to manage about $20 million as a solo practitioner. And then in 2005, I merged my business with another small firm as a partner there for almost a decade. And then five and a half years ago, I decided to leave that group and start my own company, Echo Wealth Management, as a complete independent wealth management firm here and serving many, uh, I think today my team and I manage more than 150 million for I think 82, wow. eight, about 82 households uh, across the country and some clients are overseas. And so more than 50% of my clients are successful professionals such as corporate executives and also some are uh, successful entrepreneurs. So a lot of my clients, uh, the age is about 45 to 55. They are more serious about outsourcing wealth management. So I just want to give people a little bit context about 
what I did to go from a tax CPA to starting my firm. Now I'm running this firm uh, in the Twin Cities here and serving a lot of people. And I certainly want to be able to expand my firm to serve more people. Also, I wrote this book to educate more people and inspire them to start financial planning now, regardless where you are financially, because learning from my example with that much money, with the language barrier, and I also have to overcome the uh, very male-dominated industry in order to thrive. And that is just something I want people to understand so that they can kind of look at their own situation and say, well, what can I do something about uh, about my own financial independence? So I'm going to mention one more thing and then we'll talk about some techniques, okay? One more thing I want people to also know is in this country right now, we, we certainly talked about um, inequality, you know, gender or race, right? It's a, it's a huge topic this year, right? Personally, for myself, I, I am on a mission to help change that. The way I can see how I can contribute to that is to show more women that financial, personal financial planning is a very viable career path for women. Even right now, I think in 2000, when I passed a CFP exam, there were about 23% of the CFP professionals in the U.S. were women. It's still about 23% today. Just imagine 20 years, it hasn't changed much. So I see that as if I'm able to get more women to focus on this career, Many women in this country can be served by well-qualified and ethical women CFP professionals. So that's one thing I want to put in the plug and say, for any listeners who may not know this is their ideal career path, I can tell you that I have done it. So many people can at least see this as an example and perhaps consider that. Um, So for the women listening now all over the world, from economic class that's very meager to people who are very well off and everything in between, what are signs that this may be the right career? Financial planning for a woman may be the right career. Like what are the things you love that Mm -hmm. all the financial planning women you know love? So if someone's listening, like that's me, that's me. Yes. Here's what I think. First, I want to explain why so few women got into this field (laughs) because I have my own theory why. First is Traditionally, I think in the U.S., probably in many countries, when people talk about investment management, traditionally, they think about stock picking. Like, oh, men are just great at risk-taking, picking individual stocks and stuff. That's a pers- that's misconception, right? Number one, women are very good investors. In many studies, women are much better long-term investors and very prudent investors. And then, so that's a misconception I want people to understand. Women are not worse than men when it comes to investment management. Another thing I think obstacle for people believe is they have to be so great at math. That is wrong too. The reason for it is, remember, computer 
takes care of a lot of math calculation today that I don't do math calculation in my head anymore. Not the complex stuff. So people need to think about being a financial advisor. If I look at my day, most of my times are spent on communication and understanding people's problems and be able to show empathy and be able to listen well before you give people advice that they are more likely to take. That is extremely critical skill. So in my mind, if people are thinking, wow, I, I actually love talking to people and I'm able to, I want to help people because this profession is helping people profession. It's a service profession, right? So for me, I think people, it's important to have those qualities in my mind is number one, great communication skills and be ready to learn and be ready to connect with people to solve their problems. If you kind of think about yourself and there are many skills testing, you can see Kobe, there's a Kobe test. You can, you can see where your you know, strengths are and there are different kinds of tests to see whether you would be good at a profession that is more service-oriented, because that's where I see this. So I just want people to know that you don't have to be absolutely like major in finance to be in this profession, because you are going to learn so much on the job. That's what I believe, because the world is changing so quickly. What I learned more than 25 years ago in college, imagine how how many things already have changed. So by obtaining a designation such as CFP or CFA, you are required to meet the continuing education requirements every year. So what that means is you will be studying new things every year. That's just something I want people to keep in mind. And of course, if people want to learn more, they can always read my book where I have resources planned out for professional organizations as well. So people can kind of say, oh, these are the important things to check out. And because I fully support these organizations, so then, you know, people will find a way to connect with helpful professionals in their local communities. And also remember, we are not limited to local anymore. My clients are everywhere. So in a way, this pandemic has made many business owners, including myself, to think openly about, do we deliver the services traditionally? We can never go back to what we consider the normal, like the path. Let's go and meet some people and shake some hands. You know, we're not going to do that. Gone, gone. completely, right? So what we need to do is think about how we can adapt to this new world where we know this virus is going to be with us for quite a long time. Even if we find a vaccine, I think the way we conduct business or we expect financial advisors to deliver services could be different. And for me, I may not need a huge office. I can have uh, my team in another city in the U.S. and delivering same kind of services just like this using Zoom and technology only gets better. So I I personally feel that people need to think openly, uh, even apply for jobs that are not in their cities, because now I think we are more mobile than ever. 
Yeah, I agree completely. And I've seen it firsthand in my business. I do consulting for marketing and sales. And yeah. when I've been busier than ever. I mean, I'm exhausted because you have clients from all over the world, not just even America, and you're working to mm-hmm. keep up because mm-hmm. it's so virtual and remote in different time zones and the opportunities there. But when you when organizations like, so why don't we even spend all this money on rent and facilities when we can do it at home? I think the landscape's going to change and the, we're never going to not have a need for human connection. Yeah. But I agree with you. These businesses are reevaluating what are we doing and why? And the whole world's going to be different after this in probably a better way. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's why I think it, it would be good for me to lead to very important part of my book. Uh, there is one chapter about Financial Independence Day. Um, the way I describe, um, you know, traditional term is retirement planning, right? Tr- traditional term when we talk about how do we plan for retirement? And I always for- hated that term because I don't want to <laughs> retire. I want to work and have fun and live life. So I hate the term retirement planning. Hey, David, you and I share that. The reason for I, you know, that's why I didn't want to put as a retirement planning chapter. I said, I call it financial independence day because that is the day you can work, you can make work optional, but you are moving to a different phase of life. So each person can define their own financial independence day. So for me, it's so important for, you know, when clients come to me, uh, they remember most people 45 and 55, right? So when they come to me and in my mind, I'm thinking, wow, each person is different. For some people, they want to like my financial, when I explain financial independence day, they were like, I actually want that to be 55, but of course we live to like, could be 95, right? There is like another 40 years of your life you need to plan for. So it's really good to ask good questions, listen to what they truly want to do with their life and then help them see their resources and how to plan out the future based on their vision of retirement. It's not truly like regular retirement. And many people go through many phases of changes too. So for me, it's my approach is we talk about the day that you can become financially independent, but we also can create a plan where you can choose to work. It could be starting a new business. It could be just doing for nonprofit with very low pay, but you don't care anyway. You just, you're passionate about the cost. When we build the Echo Dashboard, that's the financial plan I'm talking about. It's a living and breathing plan. They can see their net worth, everything pulled together every single night, including their bank accounts, their 401k, everything in one place. They can say, today, my net worth is this. I can see that based on the plan Echo has helped us build, I can see the financial projection of my net worth, how much that will be at 55, 56, or, you know, all the way every year to age 95. And I can see the cash flow detail. I really love the cash flow aspect of it. Maybe that's why I kept bringing back to cash flow planning in this chapter is because Remember in 2000, a lot of people, they panic and sold their stocks at the market, you know, after market crashed. 
the client- Yeah, that's terrible too. I, yeah. you know, I always, when I was young, mm-hmm. I didn't even know who Warren Buffett was, mm-hmm. but I remember here, and I mean young, like I was like mm-hmm. 19 and I remember hearing a statement and I didn't invest. I was poor. Yeah. I mean, but I just remembered this rich man saying, when everybody's running, buy. Yeah. When everybody's buying, sell. Mm-hmm. And even though I didn't really understand anything else, that has stuck with me for life and it's helped in so many areas of life. Yeah, because the behavioral finance, right? People, a lot of people do not act rationally. And so going back to the cash flow planning, I think when a plan is, that's why the tool I use uh, to create Echo Dashboard is supported by eMoney Advisor. It's a cash flow based financial planning tool that I have tested many other tools and I decided this one is better in my opinion because I can see the cash flow year by year, what is coming in, what is going out. I can see all the detailed tax calculation. I can see the estate plan flow chart if I die today, if I die 10 years, 20 years from now. So cash flow planning is really important, extremely important for the next five years, especially when we are dealing with recession market crash, because if you are able to see what money has to come out of your portfolio to support your lifestyle in the next five to six years, and you already have a plan where to get it, you shouldn't be investing the money that you need within the next five years in the stock market. It's so much easier for people to be able to visualize where they have the money that they cannot afford the high-risk investment. But then you need to have enough stock to be growing for the long-term goal. So it's a fine balance of you cannot be taking too much risk. You can lose a shirt because you, can, you shouldn't be selling your stock after 35% loss to pay your utility bills. But at the same time, for people who are fearful about the market, I must remind them also, if they don't invest, they are destined to fail because they must outpace inflation. They Minimum, they have to outpace inflation in order to accumulate wealth over time. So it, it's a fine balance there. So financial independence day, I would say for people who don't have a plan today at all, they don't know where they are. First, I want them to do is if they don't want to do it themselves, they need to partner with someone. They don't have to do it alone. Just understand that there are tools that a qualified financial advisor can gather all your essential information and help you define your path, how much you need to save for retirement, how much you need to save to pay for college. Do you have enough insurance? Do you have a state plan? Are there gaps in your current situation that should be bridged? So I just want people to think about cash flow planning is really important to help them manage their emotion and they don't have to do it alone. You mentioned about the psychological, um, the emotional mistakes people can make, right? So in the book, I have one chapter alone just devoted to how to overcome behavioral biases. So if you think about human beings, myself included, right? Even though I have been trained to manage my emotion when it comes to money, I must remind myself all the biases 
and understand what I can do to minimize the negative impact of these biases. It could be cognitive biases. It could be emotional biases. My entire chapter is to help people learn to identify the risk, so that they can manage their own emotion better to be a more successful investor. And、um, that's one important information to share because we cannot guarantee. The rate of return. I always tell my clients, you know, we cannot guarantee returns for you legally. What I can guarantee is I will explain the processes, how I'm going to help you plan for your future, what kind of steps we're going to go through, and I will also tell them that I am pretty much like a coach, right? I'm I'm a the guide you chose on this journey. When I see that you are very likely to make certain emotional mistakes, I'm here to point it out. If you're overconfident, I will point out. That sounds like you are overly confident about a certain thing, like predicting this stock is the stock I need to put fifty percent of the money because I believe it's a great investment. You know, it's like I just know it's going to be great. Or some people are just very much fearful about the market because their past negative experience. So then I need to help them identify that and not to use reason return to project long term return. So they do need to kind of get some helpful tips,、uh, you know, along the way when they are struggling with that,、um, making those mistakes in in that area. Yeah, and I read that chapter of your book, and I agree completely. And if you're new to this, when you're hearing behavioral bias and cognitive bias,、mm-hmm. in layman's terms, it's just having fear and lies and misconceptions control your actions and、mm-hmm. the outcome of your future.、Mm-hmm. Because we all believe things that aren't true, or maybe we all have the internal like sabotage. So what Echo's talking about is saying, nope. We're going down to black and white. Two plus two is four. We're dealing with facts, not feelings, and this is how you're going to be comfortable when you're older. That's how you do it. So that's great, Echo. Before we, you are super passionate. I love it. Before we go further anymore, I want to take a second,、mm-hmm. probably about 120 seconds, and thank our sponsors real quick for the show、sure. today. So our show sponsors today are BTK Innovations. BTK Innovations makes the body temperature kiosks that you're seeing all over the country, all over the world. You walk up to these scanners in America. They're the premier brand. They're, or I think, right now it's in the Florida Supreme Court. They're all over schools and courthouses and and law enforcement facilities and federal agencies. But you walk up in one second, boom! It scans you. It says if you have a temperature. It reminds you to put on your mask if you don't have a mask on. It can use facial recognition if you want to set it up that way to take attendance. It can open up and close doors. Hey, you have a fever. You're not coming in. Hey, you、uh, screamed in our bank two weeks ago. You're not coming in. Or hey, you're welcome to come in. It's a great kiosk. It does a thousand things. They're super great value. But BTK Innovations. You can find them at Body Temperature Kiosk. Singular body temperature kiosk dot com, fantastic product. I love it. I'm actually working with them, but even if I wasn't working with them, they are a great solution for everything going on today around the world. 
Next, we're talking about Echo and wealth management. Pensacola, I can't speak for the rest of the world, but Pensacola, Florida is a beautiful place. I am so glad I live here. The market right now is hot. And when I say hot, I'm talking put offers on a house goes up for sale and there's 15 to 20 offers in 24 hours. It's super like just a great market to buy right now. And Pam Heinold, Pam Heinold, you've heard of her in season one. You've heard of her in season two. She's fantastic. She's a top realtor with Better Homes and Gardens. She's one of the top realtors in the entire area of Pensacola. And if you're looking for a home, a vacation rental, Echo can help you with your money management. Echo can help you live your dream. Again, we talked about our society today. You can live anywhere in the world and work through your computer, right? Why not live in Pensacola? So a plug <laughs> for Pensacola, right? We talked about education. Pensacola has Pensacola State College. It has University of West Florida. It has Pensacola Christian College. You got colleges. You got beaches. You got great people. Call Pam Heinold, pamheinold.com. Again, the show notes will have the link, but talk to Echo. Get your financial plan together. Come to Pensacola. Make sure you have a body temperature kiosk in your business so nobody gets your people sick and you're good to go. So that's it. I just want to make sure we thank our sponsors because they keep us on the air so we can keep bringing you valuable content to help you grow. And on that, Echo, people listening. So I can talk more, a little bit more, right? Oh yeah, that's just like a break. What I want to have you do now (laughs) is this. That was just like the the old-fashioned intermission. Now people can push pause if they need to go to the bathroom. But yeah. that was just the intermission break. But what I'd love from you is anything on your mind, share. Yeah. But people right now, they're like, okay, Echo's got me interested. What should I, because, and I'm sure this is one of the main obstacles you face, correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. So many people have financial planners and they're like, well, I don't need anybody because I have Bob or I have mm-hmm. Cindy, right? Mm-hmm. But I don't want to be offensive to everybody. If you have doctors, what do you call a doctor that graduate first in his class? Doctor. Doctor. What do you call a doctor that graduate last in his class? Doctor. Also doctor. Mm-hmm. So with financial planners, just because they say financial planner, what should people, the first question, what should people be looking for in their financial planner? Now, relationship is important. Yeah. And they might be making, well, I'm making X percent and I'm happy with that. Mm-hmm. But I'm always like, why make X dollars an hour when you can make three X? You know, why make 7% on your investment when you can make 15? So the first question I have, and we're going to go off into anything you want to cover, but for the listener now, what's the first thing they should be looking for in their financial advisor to make sure they're qualified and can trust them with their their future? Yeah. First, I want to share the statistics uh, in the U.S. Uh, Only 20% of all financial advisors in the U.S. has the certified financial planner CFP designation. So I just want you to know, unlike attorneys, CPAs, doctors, there is exam for them to pass and then they practice whatever they do. Financial advisors, on the other hand, the industry is so different is because people can call themselves financial advisors even if they don't have any certification or they don't need to even have college education. They can also call themselves financial advisor, consultant, or financial planner. It's kind of like with counseling, a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, and a coach. 
anybody yeah. can call themselves a coach, but that doesn't mean they have that kind of intellect. Exactly. And so personally for me, if you believe you want to find someone, especially you know that person is committed to higher standard and also ongoing education, certified financial planner designation is one way to say, you know, and I have CFP and CFA, right? But so that's one thing to kind of distinguish from people, right? Some people. Another thing I certainly believe it's important is, can you connect with that person? Because personal wealth management has to be personal. So it's, you need to find someone you can click. You can share your fear, anything about the money story and the money history and your hope for your money to accomplish for you without feeling shame. I personally feel it's important that you feel comfortable assuming you believe that person is competent. Remember first, you want to find somebody you believe is competent, have good training, knowledge to help you plan for your future. The second thing is that person has to click with you in terms of personality. The third thing I think is really important to find out how that person offers services and whether there is a team to support that services. And it's really good to find out whether that's a good fit. The reason why I mentioned that is there is so many different ways to provide advice. Some financial advisors may choose to only open account and manage investments alone, but they don't do any financial planning. So some financial advisor will be you know, all I'm doing well when I just manage your money, meet with you either quarterly, you know, whatever, semi-annually or annually, but that's what I practically do. There are other financial advisors like me look at that as a one component, but there are many other components of wealth management. As I mentioned in my book, you must review your risk Look at all kinds of insurance, life insurance, disability insurance, potentially long-term care insurance. You must have some kind of tax strategies to help you minimize taxes. And I also work with clients on estate planning by working with their trusted estate attorneys. And so I think it's important to kind of understand what services and also always ask about their ideal client. You know, for example, when I put it on my company website and I, you know, if somebody just called my office, I would have a, my, one of my team members have 30 minute Zoom, Zoom call first with that person. Because that 30 minute phone interview kind of thing is get a good understanding what that person is looking for be able to explain our ideal client. If there is a good fit after the 30-minute call, then we offer the 90-minute longer version, fit meeting. So we dive into more detail about the fit before we have that contract presented and signed and start a relationship. So I think for people who are out there thinking either they are, uh, they, they are not very sure about their current advisor or they, are, they simply don't have advisor. 
I think it's important to understand the best way is find somebody who already has very good network. One of my chap, one of the chapters in my book is about creating a financial dream team for my client. So my role. The way I see my role, I think for people who like football, maybe I just say I'm a financial quarterback. <laughs> you know, what I mean, it's like you come to me first, and I'm asking a lot of questions to understand your priorities and goals, and I by also ask their question, their relationship with the tax CPA,、uh, their relationship with their attorneys, whether they have an estate plan done, when was it done before, what was the experience, you know, and just have a, an insurance agent as well. So by asking those questions, getting to know the gaps. If they choose me as their financial advisor, I always tell them that under my watch, I must make sure these are working seamlessly for you. I can either use their existing professionals that they trust introduced to me, so that I am part of the team, or if they don't like their current. Attorney, CPA, or insurance agent. I have my own network that I have vetted over the years that I have good relationship with, so I can introduce them to form a team. Here's I want to give you one example why that's so important, because we live in a very complex world when you think about financial world, right? Wealth management can be complicated. But it doesn't have to be. Is my key message in the book, because for a lot of successful professionals,、uh, if they start having stock options, restricted stock, and defer compensation for them to choose from when they get promoted, suddenly they were like, "Oh my God, this is not just managing my four hundred one k. I was feeling just okay getting my stuff organized. Now it's like, oh, I need to make some decisions when to exercise my stock. What is the tax impact?" And suddenly, it becomes overwhelming. Same thing for successful entrepreneurs, because I am one. So I know when you run a business, you are dealing with million things all the time. What can you do to make your financial life, especially the personal aspect of it, as simple as possible and organized? And I believe you should find a financial advisor who is well, very competent. Ethical, look out for your best interest, and who is willing to help you simplify your financial life by assembling a financial dream team to assist you, so the tax season can be less painful. I can tell you that because when I had my clients gave me written authorizations to share their tax forms. And their personal information electronically, securely, with the tax CPA's firm during the tax season, and I am able to communicate with the tax CPA in the language they understand during the year as well in terms of tax strategies. That is going to be so helpful in terms of not just saving tax dollars; it's just less headache. I mean, less likely to make er- mistakes during tax season. So that's one area. If people, you know, just say, you know, echo wealth management just sounds like there's just so many moving parts. That's correct, and that's why I want to make it 
as simple as possible by using useful tools. So the book aims to give you the useful tools and education to think properly about your money, and then follow some steps, simple steps to get to a place where you don't have to do it alone. You can find somebody you can trust. You can find somebody who will look out for your best interest, and they actually love what they do. Just like the way I say it, you know, I don't envision myself actually retiring. I envision myself being someday, gradually, I will be reducing the you know the actual work, but I will have wonderful team. Uh, for the you know that's one reason writing this book is try to get the right people to join the business or join my firm down the road so that we can all together help more people. So that's where I feel like it's probably worth it for me to talk about why they need to take some steps to do research on the financial advisor's qualification experience if they don't have the tax experience. Do they have a good relationship with tax CPA who can help you? If you are an entrepreneur and a business owner, you need very good bookkeeper, very good tax CPA who understands business accounting. So I think for business owners, you need a good banker <laughs> because line of credit is important, especially during crisis. And so, as you can kind of see, I mentioned a few. Uh, dream team members on the financial team. In my book, I would go into the detail about what roles each should play and how you work seamlessly together to make your life relatively uncomplicated, so your decisions are good decisions. Yeah, and one thing for the for us as the listeners that I love about you, Echo, is. You have the banker, you have the、yeah. CPA, you have the accountant. Well, I mean, I'm sorry, the financial planner. You have the attorneys. These are all key components. But with what you do in your team, you have some banking history. You have the CPA. You have the financial planning. You got a law degree. But what I'm saying is, you understand all of this. And my mind keeps going back to, even if a lot of people, especially in America, when they hear, I remember one time I was teaching at a college. And I'm like, hey, who can help me out? And like 30 hands went up out of 40, right?、Mm -hmm. And then I turn and I said, it's simple math. Whew, all of them went back down. There's like this <laughs> stigma with with math in America, and nobody wants to do math, and nobody likes the financials. But it's important. But if you have ever been sick, not like a、mm -hmm. cold sick, but there's actually、mm -hmm. something wrong.、Mm -hmm. If you go to one doctor, you're getting. That doctor's opinion in his or her specialty,、mm -hmm. but that may just be a symptom of something else. So the team approach to medicine, like speaking of Minnesota, like the Mayo yeah. Clinic, yeah, they have a team approach to medicine,、mm -hmm. and they all connect and talk. Yes, that's the same thing with your finances. If you're looking, and I tell my、mm -hmm. clients this, like when I do marketing and sales, I do a lot of consulting with, with corporations of all sizes, but but sometimes a lot of money's involved. But I don't care if they're a startup or if they're a fifty-year business with huge assets. I'm like, listen, you need to talk to your accountant because you said you talked to your attorney. Well, they're looking through it their perspective.、Mm -hmm. The implications twenty years from now, from an accounting perspective, may be disastrous. 
you need to talk to all of them and find that balance. Mm -hmm. And why I'm telling you all of this right now as you're listening to this podcast is because Echo's doing that with the financial planning, the CPA, with the banking, and she's giving you a balanced approach to hit your goal specifically, not something heretical. So thank you so much for sharing this, Echo. Um, we've gone through your past. We've dug into the book just a little bit, and there's so yeah. much more. And we know in the future, we're going to get into where you're going. But right now for the listeners, is there anything else you want to share with our listeners um, to help them really consider their future or some tips and yeah. tricks or, or what you'd like before we close this session? Yeah. You know what? I'm going to first go uh, pick out a couple things from the investment management chapter. Remember, oh, yeah, especially with everything today. So oh, crazy. Yeah, absolutely. I want to speak just uh, about that piece at this moment and then maybe a couple of tips on the estate plan. The investment management piece, I really want people to understand that it's important to do some kind of analysis about your own risk profile. And the way in my practice, I use a tool called Risk Allies. Uh, you answer some questions to see your perspective and how much risk you're willing to take to get additional rate of return. And then the software tool to give you a risk number. So of course, a lot more people are more in the middle, but some people are truly risk takers and some people are extremely conservative. It's good to know where your risk number is that represents your willingness to take a risk. That is different than capacity to take a risk. Let me explain what capacity to take a risk. The way we can see whether what is your capacity to take a risk is through the cash flow planning I was talking about earlier. Actually look at all your resources, look at what is required rate of return for you to get to your goal. If somebody it hasn't done much saving and they want to retire within five years, it's almost impossible, right? So even whatever number projection, you have to use reasonable rate of return assumption to do it. If their financial plan projection does not look very good for them to achieve their goal, their capacity to take risk is very small number. So if their willingness to take risk is very, is very different number than their capacity to take risk, these two somehow need to be reconciled. It's my job to explain, to educate them. These two, how do we bring it together? So when we design their portfolio, we don't want to design something that's a too high risk that they don't have the time for because the capacity risk number is low. Or if somebody who's like very, have a great capacity to take risk because they are savers and they don't retire until like 20 years from now based on their goal, well, they are lost money in the past. They are very pessimistic about the market. They rather just put the money in the CDs for the rest of their life. Well, the risk number, the willingness to take a risk number is too low that they may not even outpace inflation if you just go by their willingness to take risk. So for those clients, I also need to educate them visually to bring the portfolio risk number up a little bit, that's more reasonable for them. So that's one thing with the right tool. The biggest mistake investors could make is they do not understand their current portfolio risk. 
So if you if I review someone's portfolio, they tell me they are conservative. I have a client who said I'm so conservative. I practically can't look at my statement during market crash. But then if you look at where they invest, sometimes it could be 90 to 95% stock market and some could be very only a few stocks. So in a way, what they say is very not matching what their current portfolio risk is. So that's very important for people to understand their portfolio needs to be built correctly, diversified globally, properly with different type of stock investments and bond investments and everything combined together. If you read my book and still think, well, if you can do it yourself, some people will be doing themselves. But some people, I would say majority of the people probably don't want to do everything on their own, especially financial stuff. Then they understand if they hire someone who will do it for them, at least they understand what they can expect this professional can do. So that's one investment piece. And I also, the second tips for people is... Well, before you go on the second tip, I, I, I agree completely because right now, if you haven't talked to your financial advisor other than casually in five or 10 mm-hmm. years, the world is such a different place. And I'm not, this isn't political, mm-hmm. but you can't print out a trillion dollars in money and not expect it to affect the future. So if you're like, man, I've been on pace, we're doing good, we're beating Mm -hmm. inflation, you really need to relook at your financial planning, whether it's with Echo or go back, you know, talk to your financial planner. But if they also haven't taken the proactive measure to talk to you, it may be a sign you need to talk to somebody new like Echo. Yeah. And yeah, the environment, the interest, you look at the interest rate is near zero. And it's really difficult if you compare, you know, to in 2000, U.S. Treasury probably pays more than 6%. Now the 10-year U.S. Treasury pays them less than 1%. So how, how do you look at, you know, in 20 years, just the bond return has changed so much and the government is printing more money. So there could be a risk of high inflation if we don't get it under control in the future. So things are always changing very quickly. So one investment tip for people need to understand, remember I mentioned the money that you cannot risk because you need to withdraw the amount you need to withdraw within five to six years should not be in stock market. You got to remember that. But for any money that you have the longer time horizon to invest, remember diversification is the key. So don't put all your money in the same basket. Don't put your, all your eggs in the same basket. And also the time in the market is more important than timing of the market. So I don't want anyone to believe even experts do not have crystal balls to say, well, I'm going to just sell all the equities and park here because I can kind of predict when to get back in and get you the best return possible. Because even professionals, when they did this, during a market crash, remember this market crash went down 34% quickly for S&P 500, but came back so quickly. So for people who think could be overconfident, who think they say, you know what, I don't like what I see right now in the market, or I don't like my current leaders in this country, I am just going to get out of the stock market and park it somewhere 
when I feel better, I will get back in. That is very dangerous to your portfolio because I have seen this happening many times, especially during market crash, the 2000, the 2008, 2009 financial crisis, and this coronavirus market crash. When people think they can time the market precisely, they are the people in general lose a big time. So staying in the market. Monitor it. Make necessary adjustment to fit your risk number, your target risk number, is the best way. And a professional should be able to explain to you and say, you know what? If there is not much you could do during market crash, you should not do crazy things during stock market crash. Things should be done well before the day market crashes. So that's my. Sec, I would say my second investment tip from that chapter, and、um, so may I go into estate planning?、Um, yeah, absolutely. Share share estate planning. That's huge. Because I mean, I don't want again steal your thunder. What you're going to say, but I think one of the oh man, it's so sad. I see so many people either passing away and they leave their family with an absolute mess because they didn't plan ahead, or I'm going to be blunt. They leave their kids a bunch of money, and they're spoiled brats who waste it, and it makes me want to slap them in the head. So, talk about good and solid estate planning.、Um, certainly, in my book, I have a lot more details, stories too. But I think a few things people need to think about,、um, do, especially during pandemic. Remember, estate planning is not something most people want to talk about. Who wants to talk about your own mortality, right? I mean, it's not fun to go home and think about it, but. Without any plan, you your loved ones will be subject to very unnecessary pain and suffering. That's what I my job. It's my job to bring that up over and over again when clients do not finish their estate plan or have just hesitant to review their very very old estate plan that is so out of date. Yeah, I have somebody very close to me,、mm-hmm. and they had someone pass away in their family. They're trying to deal with the grief of losing、yeah. a loved one. A year and a half, they were tied up, and I think they said just in their legal fees. And there, there was no debate. This wasn't、yeah. even like kids arguing. Just with the state, yes, because things weren't done right.、Mm-hmm. A year and a half, so much wasted time, and it was like sixty grand out of their pocket, and that wasn't lost wages. Yeah. So if you don't plan ahead. You can have some real problems for your family, and you may not care because you're gone. But if you love your loved ones, <laughs> take care of them now and fill out your will and plan yeah, your estate. So quickly, there I can I can tell you that even very high net worth professionals that I have served over the past twenty some years have made many mistakes. So I could imagine many people simply the worst thing is have no plan. That is the worst thing, right? No plan means you have no will, no financial power of attorney, no healthcare directives at all. So if you don't have anything, then your state laws are going to decide. That may not be what you want. That's what I always want to tell people: there is a plan for you. It's just the plan that you may not like. So do you want to come up with a plan right now that? Maybe that's gonna be like reflect your own wishes, right? So most important thing is if you don't have any, 
create one, even the most simple one that covers the, you know, I'm talking about in my book, I have more detail, but for most people, if they don't have as much wealth or not blended family and they don't have a big business, they may just go with the simple will, but at least there's a will. Very important is financial power of attorney. Remember, financial power of attorney is you are not dead, but you are not able to pay bills. You could be sick and in the hospital, but your bills still need to be paid for your family. Who can step in and manage your financial affair? Yeah, you- and not to scare people with COVID right now, but like. My buddy is, he runs several successful companies and I went over where we were actually, we became friends through business. So I mm-hmm. love that. Like, you know, you work with your mm-hmm. clients, you become personal friends. So this yeah. guy is a brother in Christ. We have, we do some ministry work together. He's a great human. But I went over and talked to him and he's like, I don't feel right. And mm. then come to find out he got COVID and you know, you're talking about in one week, he goes from a healthy, yeah. strong guy to holy crap, like, you know, and he has personal affairs, he's got professional, you know, interests. And so I'm sure he's going to be fine and and everything's gonna be great. But what if something happened, you know, what's going to happen to his family if he wasn't prepared, and he is prepared. Yeah. And healthcare directive, you already know, you know, the pull the plug situation is who do you trust to make that life and death decision? You know, it's such an important decision. And your immediate uh, family member may not be the best one or your spouse may not be the best one. Because they can't think clearly. I just want people, you know, I don't, I'm not an attorney, but I work so closely with estate attorneys. And I certainly offer tips because I have seen so many different situations since I could go bad, you know, really bad. But with the proper planning, and I also remind them, I was like, you know what? If you don't want to be uh, kept alive forever, you know, and you don't want your family to pay so much medical costs in the last year of your life, and you have no quality of life, and you are kept alive because you do not have a good healthcare directive that is clearly spelled out how you want to be treated. And you, if you didn't select someone who actually know exactly what you want, well, doctors are supposed to keep you alive. That's what they do. So I just want people to think about that and say, you know, you're doing this for your own interest. You are also doing this for your loved ones as well, because it's so difficult for, for you to choose the right person to make that decision. And then Many mistakes for people is they have a plan, but they have not reviewed it for many years. I had a client years ago move like three states already. You know, like the thing was done. It was totally in a different state. And then he already lived in Minnesota and he has property in another state. And then I was, you know, very, very highly educated, high net worth individual. When I looked at the estate plan and I was like, yeah, I think you had this when your kids were really young. I mean, they are, you know, functioning adults already have their professional career. I mean, they, I think he made most of the mistakes I put down in my chapter. It's like you have no trust to hold the property in another state. So the probate process could happen in both states. 
So a trust was created, but it wasn't funded. It's very frequent for me to see somebody pays several thousand dollars back then to create a sophisticated estate plan. There was a revocable living trust, but the trust wasn't even funded with the assets. So in that case, it's kind of useless because you are owning your own asset and then you own a cabin in another state. It will have to go through probate court in both states. So that's what I'm talking about, the cost, the time for the loved ones to deal with multiple state probate courts. So for certain clients, I highly recommend the using revocable trust to hold their investment assets or their cabin and other investments so that when they pass away, It's a private event. It's not a public event because probate is public. Everybody can see what your beneficiaries are getting. They just need to look up the record. But if the money is in a trust, your trustee, you know, you can be your you can be trustee for your own revocable trust when you are living. But you will definitely have alternate trustee to take over when you are not living. But the good thing is you can have all the wishes how to manage the asset in the trust. When the trustee can distribute asset, maybe different percentage at different age for your children. Remember you're talking about, so those kids don't get like several million dollars all at once. Uh, So you can kind of like control. Yeah, that never ends well. Control from the grave is kind of like, you know, if you do it right. And so people need to reveal their their own uh, estate plan. And for people who have minor children, always review your choices for guardian. I have to tell you that is one thing a lot of people keep putting it off because the husband and the wife may not agree on the guardian. You know, primary guardian, I need to pick one. And if they disagree, but sometimes I have to say, you know what, if you still need to do it, you can always come back and visit or you change without a choice of guardian. Can you imagine when you die with two minor children, the court will have to appoint somebody. You don't know what the court will do. So in a way, I I want people to at least think about that and say, I personally, this is my third estate plan and I'm signing my third estate plan next week. So I also want you to know, even as a professional myself, my situation changed. I need to revisit and go and sign my new estate plan. And I was like, okay, one of my guardians uh, moved back to China. Maybe not my best choice. You know? So you do have to kind of think about that. So I want people to think about, you don't have to do it alone. But if you have no plan at all, I challenge you right now and say, I am going to do that in the next month. At least start looking up, either read my book and then go. If you want to send me a message, I could give you some resources in other places where you can talk to the right people. That's good too. But at least start looking at that and review your estate plan and have a conversation again about healthcare directives and choose probably three in case the number one choice cannot serve you. There is number two and then there's number three who can step in. Yeah, absolutely. And for some of you, you're busy and you move. I mean, we moved eight times in 10 years at one point. And yeah. if you're moving, what if your person that you left the children to be entrusted with 
is in another state. They've already endured the trauma of losing you. They don't now need to be picked up and be put with another state that you've maybe filled out five years ago and you don't really know those people anymore. So you got to be really careful with that. So thank you, Echo, for bringing this up. I, I just think people just need a constant review and they can always revise their plan. And, um, and I think, um, oh, I think in my uh, book, I also mentioned about charitable giving. I personally believe in... Everybody should give to the Remarkable everybody People podcast. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's, that is your plug for sure. I'm right? just kidding. Yeah, you- we are a char- <laughs> We're doing this as a ministry, not for money. Yeah. And we want to be able to bring you valuable content. I'm just teasing. I'm yes. just teasing. Yes. And, and, you know, I certainly believe in um, helping people to give to the causes they care about in the most tax-efficient way as well. So... For many of uh, my clients, I, I mentioned to you in general, they either high net worth or high income. And some, fin- some professionals have highly concentrated stock in their company that they must own. And then over the years, they accumulated some individual stocks that have gained, unrealized gain. It's really important to understand there are strategies that could really help them to transfer some appreciated stock to one easy example is donor advice fund that I can help them set up. It's really simple to set up as little as $10,000 or I can set, I mean, I don't charge extra to set up, but the balance doesn't have to be greater than 10,000 to set up, but it works so well because the example, somebody transfer $100,000 of stock that ha- may have $60,000 gain in it. If they sell the stock, they have to pay taxes on $60,000 gain. And then if they write a check to the charity, either churches or any charity, they can take the deduction of that check, right, on their tax return, but they pay taxes on their gain. So if I create a donor advice fund and transfer $100,000 that year into that fund, they deduct $100,000 on their tax return as charitable deduction that reduces their taxable income by 100000 So for my high-income clients, 100000 deduction saved them like 47000 in taxes in one year because they are at 37% federal tax and Minnesota is almost 10% tax. So 47,000 tax saving immediately in the year of transferring that asset. When the stock goes into this donor advice fund I manage for client, I decide how to diversify and sell whatever, how much I want to sell that stock and then diversify into other investment to reduce the risk so it's not just one stock. So that accomplished another purpose, right? Diversification, because when I sell within donor advice fund, it's a charity. So there is no taxes you need to pay because as a charity, you don't pay taxes. So it's a great way in my book, I I showed very detailed ways of doing it. And for some clients, and they can request money from the donor advice fund if they want to request 5000 10000 out of there, anytime they want, there is no limit like the time. So some people may want to give like 5% of that balance 
Each year, they request online and send the check directly to the charity from that account. I told them, don't write checks anymore. You help your CPAs because you don't have a shoe box, a shoe box of receipts to them. <laughs> <laughs> and I say, how about just give them one piece of paper because your donor advice fund is going to give you a letter of acknowledgement showing exactly the gift. Uh, the market value of the gift is worth this much. It says really clearly, you know, this is, should be reflected on your tax return. So I was like, just change the shoebox, make it into like a one page or piece of paper, and then your tax accountant would be very happy too. Yeah, I'm laughing because right there <laughs> at my feet, I have a folder with files. So I don't throw all the receipts in the shoebox, but I'm pretty close. I just put it like medical, business, like I have it filed, but my accountant has to do a lot of work because I'm not as good as other people. So anyways, listen, Echo, it's been great. And for you listening, seriously, Echo's book has all the stuff we talked about to it in more in-depth level and more things to consider. Yeah. You can, I'll put a link in the show notes to the book. And Echo, right now we've talked about your store, which is Mm -hmm. remarkable. We've talked about, you know, building up to today where you are today. Where's Echo going in the future? Where are you headed? How can we help you get there? I really want this book to be read by more people. Obviously, it took me a year and a half to write a book and the work is not done because I think work, the work has just begun because it was published last month. And so I really want a lot more people to read it. So whatever you can do to help me spread the word, and I have a personal uh, website, echohuang.com. So it's just my name, E-C-H-O, and then my last name, H-U-A-N-G.com. That's where you can see all my social media. You can connect with me. You can read my blogs. From there, you can link to the book. Or if you're interested to learn more about my business, from there, you can also link to my business website, echowealthmanagement.com. And in terms of how I want my business to, how, how to do it, right now, I believe I'm in the middle of my kind of career path because I have done it for a little bit over 20 years as a wealth manager. And I see myself working probably still full-time for at least next 20 years because I love what I do. So I want to, if you guys want to help me spread the message is for more people to learn about how my business, what kind of people I want to look for people to join my team as well. So I certainly would love to hear what other people want to do if they're already in this, uh, you know, industry and see if we could link, we could talk and find common uh you know, just find common interests, maybe able to work together. For those listeners who may be my uh, ideal prospects, and the way I describe my ideal prospect is I really want, I'm looking to work with people. First, I enjoy talking with them. (laughs) That's my number one criteria. Seriously, people ask me, hey, what is your minimum? Like, you know, how much money do you must start? I said, that is actually a soft minimum. It wasn't like absolute term, but I must enjoy the conversation where I see we enjoy talking and I can actually, I believe that I can 
enjoy this journey together because I'm looking for a long-term relationship here. And I want to make sure people trust me before I actually manage their money. So to create trust, we need to be able to talk honestly, openly, and be very transparent. The second criteria I normally have is I want people to believe in my business philosophy, how I offer services. So I do not get paid by commission. So I want people to understand that how I get paid is from the client. So I have two services, financial planning service, the way I was talking to you about all the things I do for clients in terms of helping them to plan with the Echo Dashboard. That is a separate service. And a lot of people, I believe they must go through financial planning services before I actually invest their money. That's the investment management service. And have all my fees scheduled posted on my company website, echowealthmanagement.com. Unlike many companies, they don't put any fee schedule there. I say, you know, I put it out there so people can see how transparent it is because. They can see exactly how I get paid when I manage their money. They, I give them a quote for financial planning fee based on complexity. And so it's important for people to believe that I don't want to open the account, manage their money before I do financial planning for the family. So, and I think in terms of minimum, I don't have extreme, like solid minimum, but I know a lot of clients would get the most benefit if they are a little bit more high income. And because I do a lot of tax planning, so they see more benefit if they make at least $300,000 a year, or they have minimum about half a million dollars or more uh, for me to be able to help them manage proactively. So that those are more like a soft criteria, but I think the first two criteria most critical, and they don't have to be living in Minnesota. So I also want to make that clear. So people anywhere can pretty much uh, reach out if they're interested in learning about my business. So where, what else I'm going? I want to raise my daughter to be a very resilient, financially independent woman someday, and she's 15 right now. So that is one, I believe, um, I dedicated my new book to her, even though at this moment, I don't see big interest from her reading my book because it's not a novel. <laughs> so it's not a novel, but someday she's probably going to pick that up and, and read about my life stories. And, um, and I just want to make sure I create a very great work environment that is very diverse and equitable. And I hope to attract a lot more women and uh, minorities to my firm in the future. And hopefully I can do what I can to improve gender, um, you know, inequality situation in the US. Well, that's awesome, Echo. I mean, today we've got to hear a great story. We've got to hear how people from all different economic backgrounds, the same principles you have in your book and we discuss, you know, they may not have a half a million dollars, they may not mm -hmm. have $100,000, but everything you're talking about is scalable. The mm -hmm. same yes. type of investment tips that someone would use with a high income, mm -hmm. you can still use if you have a low income. Yes. And it's all about just moving that mark forward and, you know, mm -hmm. for investing, beating the inflation rate and making as much money as you can. Don't worry about paying taxes because if you're making enough money, 
it's a pleasure to pay taxes. You know what I mean? <laughs> you want to pay as little taxes as possible, but the more money you make, that's great. So, yeah. but we've, we've talked about strategy. We've talked about investing. <clears throat> we've talked about, again, your story and going forward. We wish you the best echo. Thank you for the time. If you're listening and you want to speak to echo about becoming, maybe you're a woman or a man, but specifically a woman or a minority mm-hmm. trying to go into financial planning or CPA, you know, we'll put echoes contact information again, in the show notes. If you want to connect with echo, reach out to her for financial planning, for the investing, and really own your own future. Don't let it get away from you. Bring it together, have the plan. And if you don't have your kids especially taken care of, if you're young kids, man, get your will together. That's my personal little plug today. Get your will together. Get your financial plan together. Get your healthcare directives together. Your kids, they love you. They want you around. But if we die in a car accident today, let's make sure they're taken care of. Um, and that's it. Echo anything we missed in your story, anything else you want to leave before we close up this episode of the podcast? I, I just want everybody to recognize that, uh, they can do something every single day to improve their knowledge and own their future. Sometimes it may be very simple steps such as reading a blog to they, you know, either my blog or some other people's blog just to learn more a little bit about how you can own your future. And I would love to connect with, your, with the listeners on LinkedIn and some other social media I have, but I think I'm probably most active on LinkedIn. And because a lot of people I know have their profile on LinkedIn, I think I have about 2,000 connections and I certainly would love to help you whatever I can to help you expand your network as well to get to your next financial goal. Awesome. Well, thank you, Echo. I'm so happy we got to meet and have you on the show. Um, Thank you to BTK Innovations with their body temperature kiosk.com. Thank you to Pam Honnold Realty. And thank you to you as a listener. I really appreciate you being here. I know we've covered topics in the last six months from pretty much anything I can imagine. And I just had no idea where God was going to take this show. So today we're talking about financial advising and planning and owning your future with Echo. And Echo, it truly has been a great honor. Thank you for being here. I look forward to staying in touch. And then hopefully a lot of listeners get in touch with you and you guys just connect. And then the futures are more secure for them and their family and generations to come. Yeah. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Stay safe and healthy. Most importantly, you stay safe and stay healthy. Absolutely. Thank you. And again, to our listeners, we love you. Have a great day. And don't forget, don't just listen to this podcast, but do it, repeat it, and go have a great life. This is Dave Pascal with the Remarkable People Podcast. Thanks for listening. Wow. What a great episode, right? Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. And before you go, Intern Casey, tell us about next week's episode, brother. On next week's episode, the Remarkable Podcast, we have the remarkable story of Tony Garnacha, a mastermind of marketing. He uses three basic principles to achieve his goals, discipline, patience, and preparation. He was instilled these values at a young age by his mother who suffered 14 years of polio, completely isolated from others. Tune in to hear his story and more. This has been Casey, signing off.
the Remarkable People Podcast. Check it out. Remarkable People Podcast. Listen, do, repeat for life.